Okay, if you would please turn to the book of Galatians. Galatians chapter 5. I'll be reading Galatians 5 verses 7 through 12. 5, 7 through 12. You were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion is not from Him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view. And the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. But if I, brothers, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. Let's pray. Father, I pray that we, by Your Spirit, not only think what Paul thought, but feel what he felt. It caused such sarcasm against sincere enemies of the truth. I pray this for Christ's sake, for the glory of God's sake, for the salvation of souls sake let us see this morning clearly this text amen we live in a fallen world figure that one out yet and in this fallen world until Jesus comes back I can promise you that Within the culture here or any culture throughout human history at large and within the church world, controversy is unavoidable. And therefore it is necessary. Not done yet. And because of that, my exhortation, I'm giving the application up front and we'll go through it. Hear it again. Because controversy, because truth is at stake, is necessary, how we believers who love the truth contend for the truth, the spirit in which we do it, the manner in which we deal with human beings in contending for the truth is crucial. So, there's the application. We haven't seen the text yet. So, before I go to the text, I just want to spend a minute, I think it's important to give a reminder of the context of the book of Galatians, the letter that, that Paul wrote. Remember, he and his band went off on their first missionary journey and they planted churches throughout all these cities in this large region called Galatia. A couple year missionary journey. 
And then they went back home. And behind Paul, going into those cities, infiltrating the churches, was this band of professing Christians from Jerusalem called those of the circumcision party. That little denomination within the church there. We call them Judaizers. And they started telling these non-Jewish, Gentile people who have come to repentance and faith in Jesus. I'm so happy Paul told you about Jesus dying on the cross for your sins and that He is the Messiah. But in order for you to remain saved, you men must be circumcised. All of you must come under Jewish cultural law to show that being Jewish is important because if you don't bring those things to yourself as, look, God, I want to show myself worthy of the grace of Jesus, then you will not be saved in the end. And then Paul in chapter 5, verse 1 says to them, stand. Implication here, against them. But he says it this way, stand in the freedom for which Christ Jesus set you free. The freedom of faith alone in the work of Jesus on the cross. And then it feeds into verses 5 and 6. Through the Spirit, by faith, day in and day out, we ourselves eagerly await for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything. But what counts for everything is faith which works itself out in love. Okay, got the context. Paul, in other words, he is dead serious. He says, this is the Christian life. Implication. Reject these teachers. and Reject their theology. And so now we come to verses 7 and 12. And what's it doing there? It's there as another warning of how serious this issue, this controversy in the church is. If you look at verses 7 and 12, Paul's main point is stated twice. At the beginning and at the end. In verse 7, and then again at verse 12. In verse 7, here's his main point of this little passage. You were running well Who hindered you from obeying the truth? You were, he's got the metaphor of the Olympics, of a race. 
You were running the race of the Christian life well. In other words, verses 5 and 6. You were running well by the Spirit, through faith, working itself out in loving other people. And as you were running, someone came into your lane, cut you off, and hindered your race. This is a rhetorical question. Paul's not looking for a name or names. He knows who these people are. He is stating something through a rhetorical question, which is a powerful way to make a point. These guys, these Judaizers from Jerusalem, who have come to you, I'll tell you what they're really doing. They don't think they're doing it. They're sincere. They believe what they're preaching. But what they're doing is they have caused you to fall on your face in this race and they're causing you to not obey the truth of the Gospel. You hear the point? Stop listening to them. Banish them. Don't give them any more place in your meetings to teach. Get rid of them. No matter how sincere they are, Paul says, they are against the truth. The only truth that can save your eternal soul. It's his main point there in verse 7. And he restates it in very different words. In verse 12. I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. Christians are not supposed to talk like that. Especially Paul. Come on. This is just about doctrine. Don't get so personal and bent out of shape. This is sarcasm at its highest. I mean, if I just give it woodenly in the original, which is, I wish they would cut themselves off. And every scholar knows from the way that word had been used in the past, Paul's rhetorical device here. Yes, circumcision, cutting off of the foreskin on males which they're trying to get these Gentiles to have happen to them ceremonially, become Jewish, takes a knife. Paul plays with it and says, I wish they would take it and just cut the whole thing off on themselves. For instance, let me just give you a taste. The RSV translation translates this verse, I wish those who unsettle you would mutilate themselves. The English, New English Bible translates it. As for those agitators, hmm, they had better go the whole way and make eunuchs of themselves. The JB Bible. Tell those who are disturbing you, I would like to see the knife slip. Yeah, that's a paraphrase, but it gets to the point. The NIV, as for those agitators, I wish they would go the whole way and emasculate themselves. Moffat's paraphrase. Oh, that those who are upsetting you would get themselves 
castrated. Paul's serious about how he feels. It would be better if they would go castrate themselves than influence you and actually cause you to obey their doctrine of going to get circumcised for the reasons they say you need to be circumcised. It would do much less harm. Paul was saying, that's how I feel about this issue and about these teachers of this theology. Get it? Get rid of them! Get rid of them. There's his main point of this passage. And then in between, verses 7 and 12, is verses 8 and 11. And they argue. They're the reasons Paul is again saying, get rid of these guys. So let's first take verses 8 and 9 together. This persuasion is not from Him who calls you. That's why Paul's so serious. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. So he says there in verse 8, the pressure to add circumcision, kosher diet, all the Jewish cultural and distinctive laws to say, look at us. We've made ourselves worthy to add that on top of faith in Christ is a persuasion that does not come from God, the one who calls you. You were running well. And these guys have come in and persuaded you. I guess, I guess we, in order to be saved, we better do what they say and add to our faith some works of the law. And Paul is saying, do not go to the wide path that they're preaching. Go to the gospel narrow path. If you walk through this path, it is a wide gate, and as Jesus said, it will lead to destruction. And then in verse 9, he uses the metaphor of leaven. Let me just say something for a moment. Leaven, you've heard of unleavened bread, really huge in the Jewish culture from the Bible and And leaven came to be used as a metaphor for evil because during Passover week, that whole week, you're to eat no bread with leaven in it. You don't eat unleavened bread. And so you don't want leaven getting into your bread. You want to obey the laws. And so it had this connotation of evil. And Paul uses it elsewhere, even within sexual immorality within the church. Get him out of the church! Get leaven out so that you'll be clean loaf! He uses it that way. And so, here, he's essentially just saying, just a little bit of this teaching these people are bringing. Don't just think it's just going to segregate itself over here. It is a leaven that will ruin the entire dough of the church. It will permeate. It's leaven, you put it in the bread, and it causes it to rise when you cook it. Yeast. So, This persuasion is not from Him. Now listen to His words. He uses them on purpose. It is not from Him who calls you. He means God. He could have just wrote God or Theos. But He said, no, no, of the one who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. So notice 
For Paul, believers, those who have been born again and come to saving faith in Jesus, for him, they are the called. And the leaven is, you are part of the leaven, you buy into the leaven, you are deserting God who calls. Do you remember how Paul began the letter? Just flip back a page. It's not a large letter. In verse 6 of chapter 1, Galatians, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting Him who called you in the grace of Christ. And you're turning to a different gospel. Which is really not another. I mean, they're still preaching Jesus, but they got a twist to it. To be called truly by Jesus means you will, when you hear the warnings, end up rejecting the wrong, unbiblical teaching that arises. Because, Paul says, it's not from Him who calls you. We're going to sit here for a while. Okay, this is back in the 50's. Not 19 or 20 or 16, the 50's. The first century. But, twists, tweaks of the gospel have come in all kinds of forms over the last 2,000 years. Tweaks on what is Christianity? How is a person saved? What is the church? What is the Christian life? Tweaks. And I want to speak at the core of one. And that is the insidious doctrine that has infiltrated the psyche of much of American evangelicalism. That at its core, there's just these placards that pit relationship with God, loving others, over against truth. Clarity. Doctrine. As if you can't have them both. And this church has meant something, in some cases, very different than what you read about in the New Testament. Let me give you a taste from Joe Bell's writing in World Magazine. It says, quote, There is a perverse assumption today which is dominant among evangelicals. And that is this. That feelings, attitudes, and relationships are all more important than truth. Unity is a higher priority than orthodoxy. Division, even for truth's sake, 
becomes the most offensive of heresies. Now, back in the mid-90s, right when I got out of seminary, I'm in the church world, I was still, there's a, I mean, not that I got everything figured out, but I was confused for a number of years trying to figure out what in the world is church? I mean, I, I love Jesus. What is going on? And I went through some paradigm shifts and just truth and just, this is the Word of God. And my church experience, I'm realizing there's a huge disconnect here. And what is happening? And then a book fell into my lap. And the book is titled, No Place for Truth. Or Whatever Happened to Evangelical Theology, the subtitle. And it was by Dr. David Wells, a theologian, professor. And, but he traced back for the last couple hundred years. It didn't just happen overnight. And the, I couldn't put the book down. I, think, I see it. I see what's happened. I, see, I just, even with the churches, I see what's happened. And it was... Uh, okay, let me just go back to the sermon, Joe. So I'm just going to give you a taste. In the introduction to his book, He's talking about, here, here I am, Professor Wells, teaching a systematic theology class to seminarians who are going to go into the ministry. And as, you know, the first class, here's the whole class, it's what it's about. And he also tries to encourage them with a warning, this is going to be a very difficult class, you're going to have to really think, etc. And it's going to be scary for some of you. And, so, but, okay. and then I, let me pick up, he writes, that day... An obviously agitated student who had come forward told me how grateful he was for what I had said. It was as if I had been reading his mind. He told me that he was one of those that I had described who felt petrified by the prospect of having to take this course. Pause for a minute. Mind you, a course on theology. As a matter of fact, he said he had had a mighty struggle with his conscience about it. Was it right to spend so much money on a course of study, theology, that was so irrelevant to his desire to minister to people in the church? He plainly intended no insult. As a matter of fact, this confession, which I rather think he had not intended to blurt out, had begun as a compliment. He concludes, That was the day I decided that I had to write this book. Where did that seminarian get that idea? It wasn't because he sat in Sunday school classes or heard preachers preaching line by line his thoughts. Much of life, much of theology in your thinking is caught even more than taught. He knew what church was about and it certainly wasn't about theology and biblical studies. It was about ministering to people that somehow excluded that 
stuff. But I say, look, if Paul, if Jesus, if John, if Peter, if the Bible says that it is truth that births and sustains the church, if it is truth that births and sustains true Christian unity and upholds the glory of God, then this purposefully shallow way of doing church, purposefully shallow theology and Bible within doing the local church is a persuasion that is not from God. It is not from Him who calls you. And even though this persuasion is not what we call extra-biblical, like clear heresies of the Jehovah Witnesses or of the Mormon Church and denying the Trinity and central doctrines of God and of salvation, it's, it's not like, look at this, this is what we preach. It is at its core this vacuum, this emptying, this gutting out of the truth that God has given Week after week, month after month, and year after year. And when we have the lack purposefully of giving the whole counsel of God, I will be bold and say, it is leaven. It is leaven that is being kneaded into what people believe to be Christianity. And that's why there are so many professing Christians who have no commitment to love and to care for other believers through the accountability of local church life. So many of them have said, float around, church. Yeah, I went to church over the last 52 weeks um, 24 times. I went over there, I went over here, and I did over here. This is what they think Christianity is. Accountable really to no one. And, and, and God forbid that I have a responsibility to care for others. It didn't just come about. It comes about in the vacuum of biblical teaching. The emptiness, the lack of biblical teaching. And then we'll say, yes, I'm a Christian. I asked Jesus into my heart. No, God doesn't have my money. No, He doesn't have my submission to other believers in the context of local church life. He, okay, yes, if I were to be honest, the Bible's sort of like Sanskrit to me. I just read it, my eyes glaze over, and I've been bored. I mean, I mean I've been raised in the church. And I'm bored. No, I, I have no idea what the structure of Paul's letter to the Ephesians is. No. I mean, even though you can read it in 24 minutes. Romans, I no idea. But I'm a Christian. And been one for 30 years. M maybe that's why they don't live. Is Christians. 
So the plea from this text is let's not be a people who are hindered from obeying the truth. Over the last two weeks here through Galatians, we have seen true feelings towards God and loving feelings for the good of others. Oh, that's biblical. And we have seen though that those feelings come from, not a vacuum, but the truth. Remember Paul's word? By the hearing, by the hearing, by the hearing with faith. So let's be a people. Let's be a church that doesn't separate truth and feelings towards God. doesn't separate truth and love for others. Be a church that sees the biblical unity of truth and passionate love for Jesus. It takes orthodoxy and yes, we want unity around that orthodoxy. It takes biblical facts and it puts it together with deep affections towards God and living that out towards other people. That loves and believes in true Christian relationships with people but not at the expense of the reality of the whole counsel of God. But they go together. I just want to, I'm going to read 1 Peter 1 verses 22 to 23. You can either turn there. Just, I mean, I'm just hoping if I read it slow enough you just see it. This is how he writes. Church, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth, okay, got that? Something really happens in Christians. It goes deep. There's real passion real affection, and a real work of God that doesn't happen in a vacuum, flows from the foundation of the end of that clause, truth, and then your response to that truth, called obedience to the truth, is the purifying of your souls. But now watch Him. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth, for, meaning this produces, that's what produces a sincere, brotherly love. Love for other Christians. And therefore he gives the command, go ahead, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Boom, he goes back down again. Because you have been born again. Not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and the abiding Word of God. That's where true relationship comes from. With God, with others in the life of the church. And so Paul writes to us back in Galatians 5, For in Christ Jesus, church, 
neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything. But only, the only thing that counts for everything, including eternal salvation, is faith, which works itself out in loving others sincerely from that heart. You were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion is not from Him who calls you. Just a little leaven needs its way through the whole lump and it all becomes leavened. Mm. So refuse the persuasion of today's slogans Don't buy into the false dichotomy of truth or love. Doctrine or worship of God. Theology or relationship. Don't buy it. But rather, for salvation's sake, Cherish the truth. For love's sake of other human beings, do not buy into this persuasion which is not from God who calls people to saving faith in Jesus Christ. Now, What I just said can sound divisive. Can't it? No, not to her. It is! Okay. I mean, I just spoke negatively about a trend within the church. But my contention, and I'm hoping because I'm biblical, just test all things by Scripture, my contention along with Paul is that contending for truth is essential in this present age. Particularly where vital truth is ignored or distorted. So as Paul demonstrates in our passage, controversy is necessary in this world. Because the truth will constantly be being attacked, and particularly in and through the church. It's how it mainly works. And God has ordained that the truth be maintained and defended partly by human beings, the church. Listen to how the book of Jude in the New Testament puts it in verses 3 and 4. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for faith. He means the doctrine there. The truth of Christianity that was once for all delivered to the saints. 
The reason I feel this is because certain people have crept in to the church unnoticed. Who long ago were designated for this condemnation. Ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. So the reality is that the preservation and the proclamation of clear, unambiguous, best we can, Christ-exalting, precious, biblical truth, it will cause conflict in this world and within the church world. Particularly where truth, theological truths are belittled or ignored or deemed non-essential to love in worship. Alright? And I want to close there. Wow. That's dangerous stuff for every soul. For every one of us Christians who, okay, I really believe I, lo- I love truth. I want truth. Okay. You've heard this part of the sermon. And you have to defend truth for yourself, for your family, within your church and in the world. But it comes with a warning. Be very careful how you go about it. Watch your heart. Let me just say it this way. Contend for the truth. Yes. But do it without being a contentious person. Do it without being a disconnected relationally with other human beings who you so-called want to help. Speak the truth with loving, tender, God-worshipping hearts and thus with that manner of speaking. See, one of the reasons that controversy, which is inevitable, can be so deadly to our souls is if, I'm right! And you forget that the truth is not the goal. The truth of the Gospel is the means to the goal of God. Of your worship, adoration, humility, brokenness before the God who gave you the truth of the Gospel. But when we forget that, say, I know my theology is right, you're wrong, I can't believe you can't see that, you stupid, such and such. It's really hard to believe that when I do that in a particular context, I am in any way while doing that worshiping the God of mercy who saved my wretched soul. And I have that attitude about the truth. 
But I love the truth because it is the truth that God uses for me to see who He truly is by His Spirit to worship Him today. The key in defending the truth is to always know the truth of doctrine X, Y, and Z is not the end. It is the means to the end of true affections for God, of true love for God, of the salvation of lost souls for God, and of the repentance of fellow believers who have been denying the truth that's in their Bible all along. If our ultimate goal is in its right place, which is the worship of God for me, and I want others to join me in worshiping this great God, then if we go about it as if truth were the end and start bashing people in the head with that attitude, we may push them away from the very goal that we want. Is that clear at all? Okay. See, it's a given... That Christianity is based on the truth of the Gospel. The truth of the Bible. We have it now once and for all given to us. It's right there on pages of Scripture. We can all go and say, wait a minute, maybe I'm reading it wrong. Help me. I'll help you. Let's see. Let's read this. Let's let let the truth correct us and, and speak. And so therefore, it's a given that that truth will lead to the second given there will be disagreements and there will be controversy over very precious truths. Some peripheral and some central, like Paul's right here. And that's why Paul says, I'm not indifferent about it. This, sincerely meant by these Christian teachers, is leaven. Get rid of it. It will destroy your soul. And because of this danger then, we must be people, we must be churches who are not afraid to stand for truth, to enter controversies, but never as the goal to be right. The truth is the means to the goal of true worship and of the glory of God and the salvation of souls. So, just say for instance, you're a person who believes in effectual grace or the effectual call or unconditional election and you're on campus with other Christians or another friend who goes to a different church or within this church you're having discussion and that issue comes up and friction arises just this is all my plea just remember your goal is not to truth bash them according to what you think is truth but your goal is the glory of God your goal is that God be worshipped your goal is the joy of that friend in God and if they ain't ready you got to know when to stop. 
Because you just want their best. You don't just want to be right. So the key to not being a contentious, prideful basher of others is being a person who loves and fellowships with the God behind the doctrines you say you believe. We, as yet sinners, are desperate for prayerful fellowship with God. Because that cart of truth always wants to swing around in front of this horse of our brokenness in worship before our Father. Continue to worship and pull the cart. And God may use us even more to the joy of even other believers to see more clearly the grace that saved them. So that's the question we always have to ask ourselves. The truths, the great doctrines of Scripture that you believe right now, do they just remain in your head as doctrines? Or do the depths of those truths constantly pierce and abide in your hearts? And that's why you love them. When you wake up and you're praying alone, that's why you love the grace of God. Peter says this to the church. In your... Not, not, not your intellect here yet. He's going to bring that. In your hearts, set apart Christ is holy. Just want to wait an hour. Just let it sit. And go live your life. And thus, always being prepared to make a defense. Now there's the truth. And there are the reasons for the hope. Make a defense to anyone who asks you. I've noticed that somehow you're hoping in something different than most of the world is hoping in. What is this? I watch how you live. And then make a defense. Then give reasons. Then absolutely present truth. Make a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason, for the hope that is in you. And yet do it with gentleness and respect. So that's the goal, I think. One of the main goals in the Christian life as we walk. And i got to say, I have done nothing in my life perfectly. Correct, baby? Good. But a goal as a preaching pastor for these number of years, there's been two main things. Never to sacrifice the truth for the quest of feelings and experience with so-called worship. Not done yet. And secondly, never to abandon the quest for true feelings and true passionate worship for the sake of putting truth and logic and biblical interpretation as if that's the goal. Arrive there. If you arrive there, you may die and go to hell. 
if it doesn't then go to the heart to true repentance in worship. I think we got a few minutes because I got two more verses, huh? So, verse just real quickly, verse ten, well, real quickly, for whatever that means. Okay, verse ten. I have confidence, Paul says, in the Lord that you will take no other view, no other theological view than mine. And that the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. So here Paul expresses confidence that these Galatians and these differing Galatian churches will respond to this letter and repent and get rid of these guys. And his confidence comes because he knows for every one of them who has been called by God truly, they will come to see the error and they will get rid of these guys. I'm confident that you will come to the right conclusion. Paul knows that all whom God calls will make it. He has deep confidence that he who began a good work in them will finish it. But notice, that theological truth does not keep Paul from warning them. It does not keep Paul from preaching the truth and saying, this is error, that's truth, you better abandon that or you'll be cut off from Christ. You will have fallen from grace. Why doesn't it keep Paul from that? Because they're not in contradiction to him. Paul knows God calls from the foundation of the world and He will get them all the way to glory. And he knows that one of the means that he does it is through letters like Paul had a right to the Galatians. Sermons like those preachers have to preach from the book of Galatians are the means God is using to get those who are truly called to heaven. And in verse 11, But if I, brothers, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. So here, okay, it's strange, isn't it? It looks as if Paul is responding to a contention made by the Judaizers. You know what? When it gets down to it, Paul actually still does preach circumcision, like in Judea and other places, and, and even other Gentile cities. But you know what? Galatians, what I'm telling you is he was so nervous you would reject him. He was a man pleaser. Remember back in chapter 1? Am I now trying to please him? He was a man pleaser. Paul actually preaches circumcision. Okay. It seems to be that that's what he's responding to. And here he says, they're lying. He totally denies that he still preaches circumcision. Actually, his argument is, if I still preach circumcision, why am I still persecuted everywhere I go? He's meaning, these Judaizers are everywhere. Every town I go, they're causing me persecution and trouble. 
If that's happening, how can I still be preaching circumcision? It's happening because I'm preaching the cross alone. Not adding works of the law like these guys are adding to it. And that's why I'm being persecuted. The cross of Christ truly preached is offensive to these professing Christians who want to boast in their works. That's what he says. If I still preach circumcision, why am I still persecuted? In that case, if I were still preaching circumcision, the offense of the cross has been removed. The Judaizers have removed the offense of the cross. What's the offense of the cross? It's that you deserve to go to hell. Really. And if you don't see it now, you will see it clearly and believe it on Judgment Day. We are wretched in and of ourselves. We have zero to offer to the equation of our eternal salvation in Jesus. That's the cross. And when the cross is preached unadulterated, we don't need to help God with our devising of how to do church. Just need to be faithful to the cross, the preaching of the gospel. And when we're faithful to it, that preaching makes some people extremely happy. And it makes others extremely angry because it removes from them all grounds for boasting. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians. You can turn there if you want. Chapter 2. Verses 14 to 17. Hear the heart of the Holy Spirit. Through the humanity of the Apostle Paul. But thanks be to God who in Christ and here, through us, human beings, He spreads the fragrance, incense, smell, fragrance of the knowledge, there's the knowledge, the truth part, of the knowledge of God, of, of Him, of Christ, the Gospel. He spreads it through us everywhere. So get His imagery. I'm going to slow down again. He's through us, there's incense going up to God's nostrils as we go with the knowledge of Christ everywhere. For we, apostles, preachers, missionaries, we are the aroma of Christ to God. Among those who are being saved, and among those who are perishing. To the one, as we preach, we're fragrance from death to death. They hate 
the gospel. To the other, we're a fragrance from life to life. That's gospel ministry. For we are not, this is not just a 20th or 21st century thing. No, it sounds very familiar today. But it was happening within the first couple decades of the church. Christian ministers, preachers, manipulators, adulterers of the Word of God. For we are not like so many. We are not peddlers of God's Word. But as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God, in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. That's what Paul says. If I still preached, go on and add works to your faith. Go do these things and then that will assure heaven for you because you will have made yourself to be clearly worthy of the grace that comes in Jesus. If I went on and preached that like they're trying to say to you now, I would do so at the cost of the cross of Christ, of the true gospel of Christ. I'm still persecuted everywhere because I don't adulterate the Word of God. I know God purposes the Gospel to condemn people. And He purposes it to save people. And both aromas are going up. And God forbid if we try to tweak it. We can avoid persecution today as the church in America. Let's just give up the stance against so-called same-sex marriage. We would avoid a lot of persecution. And there have been churches, and you will see more local churches or denominations doing just that. And they are abandoning the cross of Christ. Paul's point is, The cross of Jesus Christ, dear Galatians, is at its core a radical indictment of our sinful condition. And this is why I wish they would castrate themselves. Because their doctrine, preaching any attempt that we can save ourselves by our good deeds, what that is, Paul is saying, is a praise to us. I did it, and you didn't, and I'm in. And that removes the offense of the cross. And Paul won't do it. Because when Christ's substitutionary death where God's wrath against sinners was poured out and it is to be received, never earned, by broken, 
hell-bound, hopeless sinners by, by a heart of faith, trust in that alone, when that is removed, then it is a false gospel. You can say Jesus till you're blue in the face. You can say, say this prayer and ask Jesus into your heart until you're blue in the face. When you deny that and avoid those truths, you are preaching a false gospel. So, let's be a people then who judge. Oh, dear Christian, Learn to judge. Judge me every week by the book and anything I say. Judge all teachings, internet, books, or not. Judge every persuasion, whether it's stated clearly or it's just the way things are done and it's assumed in the air. Judge everything by the clear reading of Scripture and choose not to bend to the new and the improved Christianity that is more culturally relevant today. Do it for Christ's sake. Do it for the sake of the glory of God and do it for the sake of heartfelt passionate, genuine, true worship in spirit and in truth. Amen. Father, Your ways revealed throughout history and culminated in Your Son, Jesus Christ, and the unfolding of those truths through Your apostles. Your ways are glorious. And I thank You that for every pastor on planet earth today, for every teacher, for every preacher, and for every Christian in our lives, You use clay pots, vessels that are broken and undone as conduits of the truth of the Gospel that have affected us and that we can, by Your grace, be faithful to in giving to others and You eternally save, sanctify, transform through it. Your ways are wonderful and thus we worship You now with heartfelt feelings to the glory of Jesus Christ. Amen.